strategy has to be grounded in insights about what's happening in your workforce and what's important to people. And so one of the things that we invested heavily in um, when I came back into the company is the core capability around people analytics. And the business that we have at Electronic Arts um, in our games, it's very much grounded in analytics about what our players are doing, what they enjoy, what content, what features, et cetera, so that we can continue to tune our games and our offerings. And so as a company, data and analytics is a large part of how we do what we do. Yet it wasn't a large part of how my function did what it did. And so the first thing you have to do in setting strategy is first understand what's really happening in your business and what's happening in your workforce. And so we invested pretty heavily in listening tools and programs to understand what um, our people cared about and built the level of trust so that they felt comfortable actually sharing their perspectives. That was Electronic Arts Chief People Officer, Mala Singh. In this episode, Bala and I discuss her background in HR, how international assignments early in her career shaped her view on global people practices, how she thinks about innovation at scale, hybrid work, and so much more. And we'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. It's time to let go of the past perceptions of HR. Amplify is a new model of agency design from the ground up to support business and people leaders navigate the new world of work. We do that through two platforms. Our HR executive search practice is a new model of agency that moves away from traditional transactional search models with our flat fee pricing structure and advisory on the front and back end to help our clients attract and retain transformational people leaders. Our Amplify Academy is a unique platform to support continuous learning and build readiness, capability, and global networks for today's HR practitioners and leaders through the AI Learning Lab, peer learning cohort programs, community, and a range of resources to support their growth. You can learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Now, on to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Mala Singh. Mala is the Chief People Officer at Electronic Arts, and there is a lot for us to cover. So uh, Mala, welcome to the podcast. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to have you open with an introduction for the audience. Thank you, Lars. Um, thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So as Lars said, I'm Mala Singh. I have the honor and privilege of being the head of people at Electronic Arts, which is soon to be the largest independent interactive entertainment company in the world. Um, we make video games, which is the truly the next um, most exciting form of entertainment and arguably the largest form of entertainment today. And it's a, such an interesting role um, to be navigating the world of people during this time for a company like this. You know, there's so much uh, complexity in your world with uh, the global distributor workforce, the creative gaming projects and initiatives and products, obviously, that you produce. I want to get into all of that. But before we do, I want to kind of go back to the beginning. You know, what what originally drew you to HR to begin your career? Yeah, you know, in our um, industry, we call that your origin story because, you know, all characters and superheroes have an origin story. Um, mine started in New Jersey, where I spent my formative years, and I went to Rutgers. I started as a pharmacy major because um, there was a lot of influence from my parents wanting me to go into the sciences, but I took a few elective courses in social sciences and really loved it. And so I ended up focusing on psychology and discovered organization psychology. And this 
This problem statement around the amount of time of people's lives that they're spending in the world of work and how to make that as good as it can be and help people actually achieve their potential was something that really resonated with me. And so I decided to focus in on org psych and specifically um, human resources as a career. And so I got my master's degree in HR and then joined Cigna, the large insurance company, in my first um, post-grad school role as an HR associate. And from that moment of that role and the opportunity to do rotations across different aspects of business in a you know large global insurance company, it was really formative for me around this notion of how to make work better. So that's how I got my first kind of taste of human resources. And it's been, I feel, again, truly lucky and privileged to have had the career that I've had. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I want to kind of go back to that early moment in your career, because as you mentioned, you had a range of kind of rotational assignments and international assignments. And I think, especially at that stage in your career, when you're just kind of starting off, when you're in that environment that can expose you to different products, projects, and people, um, that had to have a pretty kind of, uh, you know, formative impact on the way you see kind of HR's role in, in, in building a, a better world of work for employees. So I'd love to get your perspective on that. Like how did that, especially those international assignments, how did that kind of shape your views on the field? You know, it's interesting. I was born outside the United States. I'm of Indian descent, but from British Guyana in South America. And we were immigrants to the United States. We lived the classic immigrant experience. And my world was bigger than the, than just the U.S. So I knew I always wanted a global HR career. And at the time that I was at Cigna, they had divested a lot of their international businesses. And so I followed a mentor to Bristol-Myers Squibb Pharma. And we agreed that I'd spend the first few years in the U.S. and then take the first international opportunity that came up. Um, and that was to eventually go to Singapore and run HR for Asia Pacific. I'd never even traveled to Asia at that point. And I said yes, um, because it was going to be an adventure. And what I was craving was this notion of experiencing different cultures. And that particular part of the world has such incredible diversity. I was responsible for about 14 markets and every single one is different, whether it is their cultural identity, language, religion, economic situation, political situation. And so that was one of the most formative roles in my career, being immersed within so many different contexts and settings and figuring out how to do good work around the people dimension and meet those teams and organizations where they were. So we had some very developed markets like Australia and New Zealand and very undeveloped markets like Indonesia and Vietnam. And the same principles and practices around talent didn't necessarily apply exactly across those markets in the exact same methods and ways. And so what I really learned in those formative years was how to take the core of what you wanted to do around talent, meaning create the types of systems that allowed you to attract and engage and retain the best people to power the business. But the flavor and the implementation needed to look slightly different because it, countries were at different levels of maturity. And those formative, that was like in my very early 30s, I stepped into that role. And I feel like that has formed and shaped the last 20 years of my career in one of the other benefits I've had is working across multiple different industries. And so I stayed in pharma for about 10 years. I came back from Singapore, spent a year and a half in the U.S., and then went to France. I didn't speak a word of French when we landed in France and, of course, had to learn it very quickly. And again, being in the European region, EMEA, and again, same thing. How do you take 
what you've learned about people and talent strategy and apply it to now very mature markets, very developed and sophisticated markets. And so those experiences are so invaluable in the early days of your career. And now in my role as a chief people officer of a global company, we're at EA, we're in about 25 countries. We've got about 50 offices. Same thing. We make games for the world. About 3 billion people in the world play games. And as a result, um, how we adapt our strategies and our processes and talent initiatives to really meet people where they are and still with the ultimate goal of attract, engage, develop, retain our workforce. The ultimate goal is the same. How you get there has to be different and has to be in some ways customized to the situation, to the talent, to the level of maturity. And so those early experiences absolutely have helped shape where I am today. And I know whatever I do will always have a global focus. It's just a passion. Yeah. I mean, I, I think having that early in your career, having that kind of global local sense of how to actually both design and implement um, and plan strategies, right? A kind of understanding that the markets are going to be different. The local customs may be different. The maturity models will be different. And all of those have to influence what you design, how you design, and how you roll it out, how you communicate it. I mean, there's so many different components to that that you have to be thinking about that I think that experience early in your career really kind of put you in a position to be doing what you're doing now. And it's interesting, too, because, uh, you know, you're, this is your second uh, time at Electronic Arts. You kind of spent some time. You rose up the ranks. You left to move into a CPO role, and then you came back into the CPO role at Electronic Arts, and, and you just touched on the, uh, you know, kind of locations uh, where you operate. And I imagine most of the audience is familiar with Electronic Arts. They've probably played your games or have kids who have played your games or, you know, have have some connections. So, uh, but they may not be very familiar with the organization as a business. So could you maybe take a few minutes and just give an overview of, you know, the business uh headcount, you know, kind of uh, international hubs, and then and then a, a bit of a window into uh, how your people team is structured to support that. So when I walk through some of the statistics about this industry and this company, people are often surprised. Um, I think people's perception of what a gamer is, is usually a 16 to 25 year old male who plays um, with shiny disks and boxes on a console bought from Microsoft or Sony, and often at home or in their parents' basement. Well, it might surprise you to know there are about 3 billion people in the world who play games. And when um, these things came on the market, these mobile phones, these little supercomputers that we carry around in our pockets, it really opened up the world of casual gaming to lots and lots of people who never would have considered themselves gamers. And so today, that population of 3 billion people actually skews 45% female. It's 55% male, so people are often surprised by the gender mix. And it cuts across every demographic you can imagine. Nationality, age group, um, religious affiliation, political affiliation, students, professionals, you name it. And it is the world's preferred form of entertainment. I interactive entertainment, which is what video games are, is larger than movies, music, and television combined as an industry. And so the scale of what we do, even at Electronic Arts, we have about 600 million people in our network of people who are playing our games, right? So the scale is significant and the future of entertainment is interactive. If you look at um, the generations, you know, the millennials, we used to talk about them as digital natives. Well, if you think about Gen Z and Gen Alpha coming behind them, they're not only digital native, they're interactive native. 
interactive digitally native. I have a focus group of three at home with my kids. And I look at how, particularly during the pandemic, they their social interaction was and is through games. And today, even though the pandemic's been resolved and they can still, to a degree, and they can see their friends in person, their preferred mode of interacting with their friends is online playing games that they really enjoy together. Even when they get together in person with their friends, they're each pulling out their phones and they're jumping on a game that they can play collaboratively with each other. There's also this notion of self-expression, which is an important part of our zeitgeist. And interactive entertainment allows you to do that, create the the character and represent your identity in ways that are interesting to you, whether authentically or playing with different identities. And so we're in this moment in the world that really carries this creativity and um passion around expression and putting your own content out in the world and interactive entertainment intersects so strongly with that. So the company today, we're about 13,000 regular workers, but on any given day at EA, we probably have somewhere between 18 and 20,000 people helping to build games. And that population, like I said, we're in 25 countries. We have major hubs. Our largest operation actually is in Vancouver, Canada. And then we have our headquarters here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Los Angeles, Austin, Texas, and Orlando. But internationally, our big hubs are places like Korea, China, Australia, New Zealand. We have large teams in India and Hyderabad. In Europe, the UK, um, Stockholm, Sweden, Bucharest, Romania, Spain. These are major operations for us. And again, we make games for the world. And so there's a huge impetus to make sure that we have our internal teams that represent the world in terms of their diversity, their locations, et cetera. The last interesting point that I will mention is prior to the pandemic, less than one to 2% of EA's workers worked from home in any capacity. I'm talking even a day a week. Today, the categorization of offsite remote is our second largest worker category, <laughs> meaning we have so many employees now who have learned how to work in distributed and hybrid ways. And it's been really interesting to navigate that. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that. But in terms of my human resources team, um, so we have about 500 people on my in my team. We are responsible for the employee experience for leadership development, for talent strategy, all of the core programs and practices that, again, allow us to attract, engage, develop, and retain the workers we need to power our business. And we're not a manufacturer. We're not um, a typical retailer. We are an innovation company, and we're a talent company. And at the end of the day, our lifeblood is the talent at Electronic Arts and their ability to reach their potential and bring their most incredible creative thinking and mindset to the work that they do every single day. And so my team is at the forefront of that, working deeply and closely with our business leaders to make sure that we're creating the kind of environment where our people can thrive and truly do their best work. And so the way we organize is you'll recognize some of the traditional functions in human resources. We have a strong business partner function that's aligned with each of the business units and teams. And then we have an organization called our People Practices Team, and they're regionally and geographically aligned, whereas the business partners are about driving the business strategy through talent strategy. The People Practices Team is accountable for an amazing employee experience every day through frontline partnership with our employees and their managers. And then, of course, we have centers of excellence like Total Rewards, our talent team that's accountable for talent acquisition, talent planning and development, performance management, center of excellence. We have a diversity, equity, and inclusion leader, our chief diversity officer, and that team who's really 
enabling the business to become even more astute in our diversity agenda. And then we have a people relations and policy excellence team whose role is to make sure that we're looking into any concerns people have about the work environment and making sure that all of our policies, all of our practices are grounded in fairness and equity. And so those are some of the ways that we organize the people function. You know, and I'm curious, you referenced, you know, uh, a couple things that I actually want to kind of tie together. Um, scale, global scale specifically, um, uh, innovation and creativity and talent. And when you put all of those together uh, and you think about your role in designing uh, people systems and processes and innovation uh, for that population, it's not an easy task. And, I, and I'd love to get a sense of like how you think about innovation at scale, because as you mentioned early in the conversation, you know, we're, we're in this new environment in this new world of work that we're building right now, where, you know, you mentioned your shift to hybrid, uh, you know, how we think about where, when, and how we work, uh, asynchronous versus synchronous work, how we think about mental health and, and the definition of benefits and employee choice and flexibility. I mean, there's so many things that are happening now that, you know, we're, we're not to the, no, they weren't happening to any extent three or four years ago, but certainly not altogether and not at this scale. And so that's a lot to tackle. It's a lot to prioritize. Like, how do you, as a chief people officer, how do you think about how you kind of, you know, prioritize that strategy uh, in that environment? Well, first and foremost, strategy has to be grounded in insights about what's happening in your workforce and what's important to people. And so one of the things that we invested heavily in um, when I came back into the company is the core capability around people analytics. And the business that we have at Electronic Arts um, in our games, it's very much grounded in analytics about what our players are doing, what they enjoy, what content, what features, et cetera, so that we can continue to tune our games and our offerings. And so as a company, data and analytics is a large part of how we do what we do. Yet it wasn't a large part of how my function did what it did. And so the first thing you have to do in setting strategy is first understand what's really happening in your business and what's happening in your workforce. And so we invested pretty heavily in listening tools and programs to understand what um, our people cared about and built the level of trust so that they felt comfortable actually sharing their perspectives. We have extraordinarily high engagement participation in our employee surveys. So for example, we just completed our most recent engagement survey. I think we had north of 85% participation in it and about 35,000 comments, at least 75, 80% of the participants left at least one or two comments in the survey. That is extremely high engagement. People have a lot to say and they trust that we're going to listen. And so they tell us. And so grounded in those dimensions. So talent strategy is about business strategy plus people, right? And so when you start with these deep insights about what your workforce wants, needs, and we track and, and we've been doing these, this, these bits of research for the better part of five years, you can trend and see what's rising, what's declining in sentiment and understand and dig and drill deeper to really figure out what are the most salient issues for people. And we've been seeing things like work-life balance, mental health, all of those things rise over time. A lot of it expected with the pandemic. Fortunately, in this past survey, we've seen normalization because we took a lot of initiatives, right? We were able to say, hey, the people are really struggling with figuring out how to balance work and life in this you know, sequestered at home situation. 
And so we took on a very specific initiative to educate our managers on how they could get to a better place. My messaging, I write to the company uh, weekly and have been during the pandemic and really stress the importance of this, tried to set an example for it and some of the tactics I use for myself. And so grounding yourself in listening practices, not just surveys, but we, we find ways to have focus groups and pull employees together and just listen to what's happening. And when we have trust that people actually believe their perspective matters and is welcomed, that gets you to a place where you have the insights that help you really prioritize what you have to focus on from a business perspective. So these past couple of years, we knew we know what some of the barriers were. People were struggling to feel connected to the company because, again, we had been a very much in-person, the company had been designed for in-person collaboration. We needed to overcome that. How So we strengthened our onboarding practices. We strengthened um, capability of managers to bring people together in meaningful ways for moments that matter as the pandemic started to ease, to create the sense of connection. And then we started asking questions like, what level of connection do you feel your colleagues? And the good news is vast majority of the company feel either a strong connection or a moderate level of connection. My concern is moderate may not be good enough. Um, and so while we take it as a positive, there's not a lot of people in the company who feel loosely connected to their colleagues. I'm not sure it's strong enough because we deeply believe that innovation happens through collaboration, that there's a kinetic energy of when people come together and do creative work together that we get to better outcomes. And in the early phases of the pandemic, we were launching games that had benefited from the early creative process in person, right? And then, so the way you develop games is you first have to conceptualize what you're building and the art direction, the creative look and feel, the story, the narrative. And then you go into production mode where you're coding the game and you're building out the art and doing all of those different dimensions. In the early phase of the pandemic, we saw that, um, those who had engaged in the creative process before the pandemic and were in production mode, we figured out how to get the kinks out of the system so that we could actually do production effectively. And we launched some great games. Now we're dealing with games starting to come to market where the a bit of the creative was happening during the pandemic time. And not all, but some of the teams are starting to see real implications of people not being able to do the creative work together in person. And there are a lot of great technologies that have come out to allow for asynchronous collaboration and virtual collaboration, but they're just not as great as people huddled around a monitor together to look at a piece of concept art or stepping up into a whiteboard and sketching out um, a design for a level within a game and really interacting and challenging each other in a way that's very dynamic. And so we are trying to figure out as we navigate through this current future of work, what that looks like for us as a creative company. And the last thing I'll touch on is mental health. The strain of the world is heavy and high and highest it's ever been. And we see that. We see that in our people's ability to cope with stress, um, just the normal level of stress that's in any job. We see that in their patience and tolerance for things. Um, we see that in just the outright sadness over some of the things that are happening in the world that feel out of our control. And fortunately, before the pandemic, we really strengthened our mental health benefits and support. And we have best in class and generous and incredible. And it's still not enough for the, the load that people have. I'm not sure there is an offering out there that meets the needs that people have today, frankly, and just I'll speak for the United States, and I know this is true in a lot of the rest of the world. There's just a shortage of mental health professionals to meet the demand today. And that's true in the workplace as well. So we are 
working hard to provide the sort of benefits that will help people navigate the current um, zeitgeist that we have in the world. And also thinking about the way we design work and how we create um, moments that are cup filling, if you will, for people that are just drained in other aspects of their lives. As an HR practitioner navigating the new world of work, your ability to learn, connect with resources, and build your global peer community is essential to your success. That's why I launched the Amplify Academy. The Amplify Academy was built from the ground up to help HR practitioners and people leaders efficiently and effectively connect with the diverse learning needs and resources for today and tomorrow. There are three components to the Academy. The Learning Lab is an AI learning platform that includes a range of courses, resources, templates, content, and more to support the learning needs around modern HR practices for today and tomorrow. The Amplify Academy Slack community is designed to help you build your global network equity and peer set with practitioners around the world who share your vision for progressive HR practices. And the Amplify Academy cohorts are four-week immersive peer learning programs designed to help people leaders build the skills and network they need to succeed as an HR leader in today's environment. Cohort students also learn from world-class people leaders from Katie Burke, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, Brian Power, AJ Thomas, and so many more. Want to supercharge your people team? Be sure to check out the Academy for Teams product, which is designed to give you and your people teams access to over 400 resources, the full community, and more across the Amplify Academy. Learn more at amplifytalent.com slash academy. Now, back to the show. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you, you touched on that innovation piece because I think that, you know, for as much as we talk about hybrid and remote work, um, you know, I've, I've had hand, a handful of conversations with uh, peers like, your, like you who work in creative um, industries and innovation-driven industries where, uh, you know, they've mentioned it, it, they have taken a hit when they don't have that in-person connection. It's just a different experience. And again, I'm a huge advocate of remote and distributed work, but there are times and things that can get lost when you're not uh, in a room together, kind of having having those conversations and those, those you know, just the moments that stem from those things that might not happen through even best in class, you know, video or virtual or async uh, tools and platforms. Um, you mentioned in talking about mental health, you know, one of the things that I think has been so unique, especially in roles like yours over the last, you know, two plus years is just there have been so many seismic events that have happened around the world from, you know, the pandemic to the murder of George Floyd to erosion of reproductive rights in the United States to Russia's war on Ukraine, uh, political environments that we've never seen before. And, you know, especially for you overseeing and supporting a, a global population, you know, how do you think about, um, you know, how, when, uh, if, where to communicate to your staff during some of these flashpoints that happen? Because I think that's something that a lot of people leaders are struggling with right now. When do I say something and, and, and do I, if I begin saying something and I don't say something about this, am I alienating part of our population and doing that? So I'd love to get your perspective on how you think about that. If I'm being honest, this has been the most challenging part of my job over the last couple of years. And the pandemic in and of itself um, is painful. And the decision-making around that was hard, but our anchor was always, how do we take care of our people and keep them safe through this um, within what we could control? 
And I think we did a really good job at that. The other things, the sociopolitical issues that have arisen that have been so painful, the good news is we did have a platform as a company. We were always going to stand up for racial justice. We were always going to stand up for LGBTQ rights. And we were always going to stand up for gender equality. Uh, the Ukraine war was and is really hard. Fortunately, we don't have teams directly in harm's way in the conflict, but we have 2,400 people in adjacent regions. And that is painful. We've had employees take in refugees and we're trying to support them as a company in, in how they do that and, and give them some, some financial support to enable them to do that. Our teams have volunteered. It's been really great to see the outpouring. But every time there's an issue, it's painful to all the population, a subset of the population. And I think the first thing people want to know is, do you care as a leadership team, as a company, do you care about this stuff? And so there, I've been drawing the distinction between who I am as a person and my role as a chief people officer and EA's platform as a company. And sometimes people, especially our workforce that, um, you know, they're very socially active and want to see companies stand up for the things that they care about, right? Deeply care about. But there are times when there isn't values alignment, right? People see it differently. And in some issues, some issues, is, it's clear, right? George Floyd and racial justice, it was clear. There was no other side of that. Things like Roe v. Wade, there are often at least three positions. One that believes on one side of the issue, one that believes on the other side of the issue, and one that believes that the company has no business stepping into that issue at all, right? And so... We always, back to what I was saying, we listen. We have employee resource groups. We listen to what our people say and feel. But at the same time, we also think about what our role is as a company. And we aren't the ACLU. We're not a company that's been built with a mission around social justice. We're business. And depending on the issue that comes up, we always have to figure out and walk that line of what is appropriate for a global public company to take on. And because we're headquartered in the United States and because there are particularly challenging things happening in the U.S. sometimes, right now a lot of our global population sometimes feel like the U.S. issues dominate the dialogue in the company, in the agenda. And so we try to be careful about that too. And so what we have created is sort of a framework for how we think about social issues, right? Do we have standing and credibility to speak on an issue? There's some things where... You know, things like gender equality in the video games industry, we have standing and credibility to speak on that issue. There are some things where EA coming out and speaking on um, certain global conflicts, we're not standing. Or things happening in certain jurisdictions where we're not necessarily even a, a meaningful employer in that jurisdiction, we have no standing. Or credibility in some cases. And so what I would say is this. It's really hard, and there is no playbook for any of the stuff. But what you have to do is be grounded in what your values are and your your platform and be open to having and creating the kind of environment where people can have honest dialogue about this stuff. And sometimes we make decisions that are not popular, right? We didn't come out with a broad public statement about Roe v. Wade. And that created some ire for a lot of people in the company who wanted EA to come out and denounce what was going on around reproductive rights. Instead... We focused on how to take care of our people and work through with our um, benefits partners ways in which we could ensure healthcare access for some of the services that are at risk today. 
And so we anchored back into this value and clarity that we developed in the pandemic around our first priority is always the safety and well-being of our people and what we can control within the physical and virtual walls of electronic arts. And that may not mean that everybody will be happy with the choices that we make or that they agree, but at least we're consistent in how we think about these things and strive to be transparent to the degree that we can about the decision-making process. Yeah, I appreciate that context. I think it's really helpful for, you know, other um, contemporaries who are, you know, again, everybody's navigating this. And, and you're right, you have personal beliefs, you have what the organizational, um, you know, values are and beliefs. And, and, you know, the point you mentioned on standing is also very valid as well, like to what extent your your business it has a domain to be able to, you know, kind of uh, speak with other level of credibility or authority on a topic. Yeah. The other piece is also, will us speaking actually have impact, right? So there's a credibility and standing piece. And then there's, is it actually going to change anything? So going out and putting a statement on social media, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know whether that's really going to move the needle, but taking action and protect healthcare access, using our donation and matching gifts programs to enable people to get behind the causes they care about and amplify some of the groups on the ground that are actually doing the work to fight against some of these issues. I feel like that's where we should go. And then the other thing that um, is a really hallmark of us, we are the interactive entertainment company that has embraced diverse and inclusive characters and stories going back at least 20 years. And we've stood up for LGBTQ rights in our games. We've stood up for women and gender equality in our games, in the content that we produce. And in my humble opinion, that has more impact in changing perspectives in the world than a tweet. And so that's where I want to see us focus, build the most diverse company we can of people who can tell diverse stories and create diverse characters and put that into the world to help normalize perspectives and shape thinking around some of these issues. And so that's just good business, by the way. As I said earlier, we make games for an incredibly diverse world. And putting, we know players like to see themselves in games. They like to play with characters that look like them. Girls like to play soccer with female characters, as an example. And so we know that not only is it good for business, but by doing that, we also help change the narrative that soccer or global football is a men's game. It's not. There are plenty of women and girls who play football. And so these are some of the ways in which we we achieve that mission that's grounded in our values of games for everyone and equality and, and inclusiveness. Um, but the world is a charged place and social media has a lot of power and sometimes people want to want to see us use that power. But we always step back and say, is it going to have the right impact? Is it going to actually create the outcomes that we we all aspire to? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you hit on the impact piece because I think that there's a lot of, especially in the wake of all the things the last couple of years, a lot of, you know, optical allyship um, and performative allyship that isn't really even has any intent on having an impact. It's just making noise and, and making a statement. And I, and I, you know, I don't know that that helps. In fact, I think there's certainly some cases where that hurts the broader cause because it, 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 it's felt that it cheapens it. Exactly. It's empty. So 
Um, well, Mala, this has been fascinating to learn more about your, your career path and your work at Electronic Arts. Uh, I'd love to go deeper, but I also want to get to the lightning round just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. So, you know, we always start off with music. Uh, if I am checking out your Spotify playlists or wherever you stream music, who will I learn are your top three artists? Well, I'm going to give you a playlist and then a couple of artists that I've been listening to lately. So, um, okay. This is going to date me, but there's a playlist called Yacht Rock, and it's all like, oh. it's so good. Oh. It's all sort of I'm like soft rock, yeah. like I, 70s, I, 80s. <laughs> it just brings me back. You know, I I, I laugh because, you know, uh, occasionally people will reference, I'm a huge Yacht Rock fan. I have a very eclectic taste in music, Same. but Yacht Rock specifically. Yeah. Love it. Same. The weekends, I, oh it's always God. on. You it's can just my, play it for hours. I say it's my Saturday morning jam, you know, when I'm yeah. making pancakes for the kids and I just have it on and it's just it's just awesome but I also have really eclectic taste in music and I'm trying to connect with my kids right and so um my 16 year old really loves hip-hop and rap and so I took him to his first ever concert recently we went to see um a not hugely popular rapper named Amine who is of Ethiopian descent, I believe. And he just has such a positive message and it was just so awesome. And so I now listen to him with my son. So that's kind of fun. And then um, I listen to Angèle, who is a Belgian artist and she has, um, she sings in French. And so from the time I was in Paris, I still have this aspiration of becoming ultra fluent in French one of these days. So I listen to a little bit of that just to sort of keep it up. Very cool. And uh, now we shift to the screen. Uh, what was your latest binge watch? Never have I ever. Uh, Mindy Kaling's show about a young um, Indian American teenager in California. So I watched it with my daughter. I watched it with my daughter, uh, who's twelve, and we just—it's funny and so relatable for um, you know South Asian women. And so I absolutely love that. Um, I just finished Ozark, and I know I'm late to the party on that one, but I, I thought that was just incredibly well written and just such a great drama. And uh, now I'm tucking into the latest season of Indian Matchmaker. And so one of the things that I'm, I am really enjoying is how these content companies are now starting to tell different stories about different characters and identities. And I didn't grow up with that. And so that my 12-year-old daughter, and she, her, her dad is Caucasian, so she's of um, mixed heritage. But having her be able to see content, like we just finished Miss Marvel as well, of girls and teenagers on screen that look like her or of her identity is such a gift. I did not have that. And so we've been really trying to consume a lot of that kind of content. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's so uh, interesting with the, you know, there's so many different content creators out there and it's before we had you know, a handful of studios and now there are dozens of uh, different places making incredible work that again is reflective of the world. So we, we've talked about that at our company, the democratization of content creation. And the um, we see it in our business as well, the responsibility we all have to put great tools in the hands of people to tell incredible stories and diverse stories. It's really, it's really fun. Yeah. Um, I'm changing your career. You can no longer work in HR. Uh, what would you be doing? I want to learn how to do French pastry. And I love growing fruit and making jam. And so... If I wasn't doing what I was doing, and let's assume money isn't an issue, <laughs> I would, I would, you know, I'd make croissants and jam to go with it and sell it at the farmer's market. <laughs> you know, what, if I could request some gluten-free croissants uh, in that, um, I am, uh, I am, I am supportive. I will be your first customer. You know what? I am gluten-free as well. And I have to tell you, Laura, structurally it's impossible. 
It's just impossible. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So we were uh, we were in Paris, uh, my family, over the summer, and uh, you know we didn't find croissants, but we did find some pastries that were quite good. So yeah, France is actually uh, it's jumping on the bandwagon, but no, croissants need that gluten structure to do what they do. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, th th thankfully, you know, they have lots of other great pastries uh, we could choose from. So, um, last question from you, uh, for you, Mal. Who is one HR leader who you admire and why? You know, um, I've had a chance to participate in a few um, forums with Kathleen Hogan at Microsoft, and I think I admire the scale of the organization she's trying to create talent strategy for and navigate through. And scale is something that's always just intrigued me. I love the sweet spot that it, EA is. We're not tiny as a company and we're not huge, um, where it's super challenging to make change happen. I love that. I see the impact of what I do every single day here, but I'm intrigued by navigating a company of that value and of that scale. And I think she does it beautifully based on everything I've seen her do. So yeah, she's one I admire. Yeah. Yeah. She's fantastic. I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going on recollection here, but she, she may be the most referenced, uh, CPO in, in this lightning round. Uh, you, you get that a lot. And she's been a past guest on the podcast as well. I'm a huge fan of her work and also how she embraces, uh, open source, um, in her practices and shares what her team is doing and what they're learning. I think it's just so good for the field. So, yeah. Well, Mala, thank you so much for uh, sharing, you know, your work, your career and uh, your Yacht Rock tips with all of us. Now, now I know what I'm going to be listening to later today, but uh, thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, thanks for all your work in the field. My absolute pleasure, Lars. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.